Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on enhancing mental health for Hispanic and Latinx pop persons. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this class, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground. We're going to review the ecological framework and apply it to culturally responsive counseling. We'll learn about nuances in communication with people who are Hispanic or Latinx, review cultural beliefs which may impact treatment or help-seeking, review cultural values imperative for effective treatment, explore Latinx and Hispanic beliefs about health and illness, explore briefly some culture-bound syndromes, identify key psychosocial risk and protective factors and useful approaches for this population, and learn how to modify psychoeducation to be culturally appropriate. Now, I always start off my um, multicultural classes by saying what we're talking about is broad, overgeneralized knowledge. Any one client you work with will adhere to or embrace some of these principles more than others. There is change. There is always change. There's always change even among the community, there is going to be change over time. So all we're learning about today is some generalizations that can guide you in questions to ask and things to be aware of when you're working with this population. It's important that you communicate with your clients who are Hispanic or Latinx in order to identify which of these values, which of these beliefs, which of behaviors are important to them and which are not. The ecological systems approach provides a structure for understanding the importance of cultural adaptation in social work and counseling practice. On the macro level, what we're talking about is how culture frames the norms, values, and behaviors that operate on every other level. So thinking about, you know, what the media is saying, thinking about what the school is doing, thinking about what communities are communicating. The micro level represents the individual beliefs and behaviors, and that's where it's really important to differentiate or to explore with your client um, how much of traditional American culture that they embrace versus how much of their traditional Hispanic or Latinx culture that they embrace. 
The meso level represents family customs and communication patterns. And the exo level is how that individual perceives and interacts with larger structures, such as the school system or local law enforcement. Now, this framework is very similar to um, Broffenbrenner's socioecological model. So if you're more familiar with that, you use that to kind of guide your, guide your thinking. But it's important to recognize that the individual influences those in their immediate um, area, you know, their family, their co-workers, their neighbors, their local community, and their family, their neighbors, their local community impacts them. Likewise, they and their family, neighbors, and community impact the larger society, and the larger society impacts them. It's always a reciprocal interaction. So we need to look at the dynamics of it, not just assume that it's a one-way interaction, that community teaches this, bada bing. Community teaches this, so what does that mean? How does that change the individual's interaction? The relationships between individuals, institutions, and the larger cultural context within the ecological framework are bidirectional, which creates a dynamic and rapidly evolving system. Now, you know, you can look at in the United States, I'm not sure how many of you are in the United States right now, but the, what's going on in the United States, you can see how culture and what is going on in the country in general, in you know the broad scope, the macro level, is impacting individuals. And you can see how individuals who are more stressed out, who are feeling potentially more silenced or likewise more um, heard, you know, depending on, on the culture that you're talking about or the people that you're talking about, you can see how that's impacting their behavior. So there's this reciprocal interaction that is driving a um, evolution of current culture. In terms of communication, reading and writing are not a common means of communication, especially among Hispanic persons from lower socioeconomic statuses. Now, that doesn't mean that that's true for everybody. You have to ask, but it's important to recognize that regardless of ethnicity, visual learning is not necessarily where it's at for a lot of people. Um, whether they have learning disabilities or they just are not visual learners. They learn better uh, through hearing, auditory learning, or kinesthetic learning. Verbal and nonverbal communications from Hispanic people usually are characterized by respeto or respect. Well, we would hope that that's true everywhere, but it is definitely very important in traditional culture for Hispanic and Latinx population to communicate respect to one another and elders. There's an element of formality in Hispanic interactions, especially when older persons are involved. Over-familiarity is definitely not appreciated in early relationships. And that includes relationships with us as clinicians. We need to not be overly familiar. We not, need to not assume that it's okay to call people by their first name. We need to ask them what they want to be, um, what they want to be referred to. Direct eye contact is also discouraged. You can make some, but you don't want to stare directly at the person. It's really important to follow their lead in terms of the amount of eye contact that is generated. Now, it's important to remember that as a clinician, you're in this interesting little paradigm where you may be younger than the client. However, you have a position of authority. So a lot of times they will show some deference, some respect 
to you because of your position. It's uncommon for Hispanic people to be aggressive or assertive in healthcare interaction. They usually respond in silence or non-compliance. Just like other cultures that we've talked about, we talked about Asian culture last week. It's really important to recognize that having a client who feels emboldened to challenge us, to tell us that, you know, that's not going to work for me or to indicate some sort of disagreement in their treatment plan or your diagnosis, that is uncommon for a lot of different cultures. And it's actually, you know, being emboldened like that is actually pretty unique to American culture in a lot of ways. We don't want to assume that our clients are happy or in agreement with our treatment plan. We want to ask them in open-ended questions, not yes or no questions, how they think the best way to approach the problem is. We want to ask them using open-ended questions. You know, what are the benefits and the drawbacks to this intervention that I am suggesting. Uh, we want to look at non-compliance or no-shows or, or those sorts of things as communication. Behavior is communication. If the client is non-compliant, then we want to understand why. So instead of asking them, did you not like that activity? Ask them, what about the assignment that I gave you? Or what about our interactions is not effective for you right now. And that can be very threatening for someone from a, a culture that discourages aggression or discourages assertiveness for, um, especially towards authority figure. Early attention when working with the Hispanic population must be given to building to building rapport with them. Rapport begins through the exchange of pleasantries before beginning assessment or treatment for the day. It is really important to not start out by saying, hi, these are all my credentials, sit down and start asking questions. That's not going to go well. You need to invite someone in. You help them get comfortable. You need to make limited eye contact and make some pleasantries. Ask them how their day's going. Ask them what they think about the weather. Whatever it is, um, try to help the person feel comfortable and at ease first. It's really um, the first step into trying in, into building rapport. Politeness and courtesy is also essential. We need to make sure that we are communicating the unconditional and essential value of each individual that is coming before us. We want them to recognize that we appreciate them for who they are. We appreciate whatever it is that they do. And we are there to help them just as much as we are there to help other people. It's also important that we are trustworthy. Um, and being trustworthy is based largely on personal relationships and rapport. The idea that a person knows us or is one of us far outweighs that person's credentials or professional accomplishment. You need to communicate that trustworthiness as well as that desire to understand, if not understanding. I can't assume what someone else is thinking, especially not somebody that I just met. I can't forecast exactly what their thoughts or preferences are going to be. You know, I have some knowledge, but it's important to, you know, put that out there and say, you know, I have some knowledge, but I want to know what works for you. Hispanics expect healthcare professionals 
professionals to be warm and personal and express a strong need to be treated with dignity. Again, this is one of those things that should be a no-brainer for anybody. We need to be warm, personable, and treat people with dignity. To build trust, to build confidence, take time to get to know people as individuals and don't underestimate the importance of family to one's individual identity in Hispanic or Latinx culture. It is, we want to ask about their, their children. We want to ask about their parents. We want to learn who lives in the household. There could be a multi-generational household and understand the importance of all of those people in this person's life. If Spanish is their primary language, make an effort to communicate them with them in Spanish to some degree. This doesn't mean you have to hold the whole session Spanish if you are not bilingual. Uh, it does mean, or it does indicate that you should try to learn some basic niceties um, to communicate with them in Spanish. And depending on who you are and the setting you're in, what phrases you learn are going to, to vary. But it means a lot to people when you try to at least communicate with them about something or in a way that is meaningful to them. Older people should be addressed by their last name unless they tell you otherwise. Avoid gesturing too much. And that's one of the things that I really have to um, concentrate on when I'm working with multicultural populations because I gesture a lot. And many gestures have adverse connotation. It's important to be aware if you are working with a population that is Hispanic to know what types of gestures are considered inappropriate or adverse in some way. It's also important to encourage the patient to ask questions. Don't ask, do you have any questions? That's a yes or no, and that's probably not going to go anywhere. You need to make sure you're really working hard at focusing on asking those open-ended questions about, you know, what their thoughts are and getting information from them, recognizing and embracing the notion that, you know what, they probably are the experts on themselves because they've been living in their own skin for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, Latinx is an eth ethnic rather than a racial group. People who are Latinx can be of any race. Mexican Americans are the largest group followed by Central and South Americans, Puerto Ricans, and Cubans. Each one of these cultures has their own unique beliefs um, and in things that are important to them and the ways that they interact. So you don't want to assume that anyone who is Hispanic fits into this neat little mold. It's not that way. Just like anybody who's American doesn't fit into a neat, neat little mold or anybody who's Asian. You know, there are lots of different permutations and it is vital to respect that because there is a lot of country pride. There is a lot of pride in their, in their history that is dis discounted if you just lump everybody together. You know, you want to recognize where they came from and their history if that's important to them. Many people who are Hispanic or Latinx place great importance on the practice of Roman Catholicism. Central tenets of Latinx Catholicism are sacrifice, charity, forgiveness. We do need to remember this when we're working with them in terms of mental health. Now, if they are Roman Catholic, they're probably also working with a priest and going to confession and all that kind of stuff. But we are going to talk about themes surrounding sacrifice, charity, and forgiveness. These beliefs can also hinder assertiveness, but 
also serve as a great source of strength and recovery. Sacrifice, charity, and forgiveness gives people who are Roman Catholic the tools. It gives them tools to redeem themselves when they make mistakes. It gives them the belief that they can be forgiven. Um, so there's a lot of power behind those concepts uh, for people who are Roman Catholic. Along with Catholicism, the use of magico-religious beliefs are common. And this can include candles with pictures of saints. And I know my, my grandmother always had multiple candles that were in a vase and each one had a different saint on it. People's relationship with the church is changing, however, and the involvement in Protestant and evangelical churches is increasing. It's important, I know I keep saying this, it's important to ask, is the person you're working with agnostic, atheist, Catholic, you know, Christian, Muslim? People are embracing different religions now and they may not even know what, if any, religion that they adhere to. And that's okay, but we don't want to make assumptions that every person we're working with is, is Catholic, for example. People who are Hispanic can face somewhat different triggers for relapse relating to acculturative stress or the need to uphold particular cultural values. And remember, when we talk about relapse, we are talking about mental health or substance abuse, or both. We're not just talking about addiction. Personalismo is the use of positive personal qualities to accomplish a task. It's important for us to identify, guess what, people's strengths and resources. Machismo is the traditional sense of responsibility Latinx men feel for the welfare and protection of their family. Now, in today's culture in America, there is a certain... Um, portion of the population that is not supportive of this notion of machismo. And a lot of people who embrace this concept and believe it brings strength to their culture feel um, silenced, feel like the community is trying to tell them there's something wrong with them and are reacting very, very strongly. This is not true with everybody, but it's important to recognize that this is a unifying sense, a unifying belief in this particular culture that for some provides a sense of strength and security and structure, and it actually enhances mental health. La Familia is the collective identity, and it communicates family warmth, spontaneous expression of concern, interest, understanding, positive regard, and familia or the collective identity seems to serve as a buffer against external stresses in the environment because they know they've got each other. They can rely on each other. They've got emotional as well as practical support. There's also a respect for hierarchy within the Hispanic or Latinx population. And Again, that's not necessarily something that is a traditional or highly revered value in American culture. And we need to respect and recognize that this may be something that, again, helps provide a sense of uh, community, a sense of cohesion, and a sense of strength within families that embrace this concept. Presentismo is an emphasis on the present. A lot of Hispanic cultures focus on 
the right now. They don't worry about, you know, six months from now. They don't get stuck in the past and resentment. They are focused on what is going on in our family and, you know, with me and how am I interacting and benefiting my family right now. Espiritismo is the belief that good and evil spirits can affect well-being and the spirit of the dead person. So we do want to recognize that for some, there is a belief in good and evil spirits. As we talked about before, respeto indicates consideration and deference to people of higher authority, but also respect for the individual. Agreeableness and simpatica are also in important because they communicate accord, agreement, and harmony in relationships, marriage, the family, and society. Hispanic culture typically is very um, focused on the family. It's very much less individualistic than traditional American society. And we do want to recognize that for someone who's coming from a traditional Hispanic background, it may be important to them to reflect on anything they do and how that might impact their family. Cultural beliefs about health and illness. Hispanic and Latinx Americans tend to have health outcomes that paradoxically are comparable to, or in some cases better than, those of their U.S. non-Hispanic white counterparts even though Hispanics have lower average income and education. So when we look at those risk factors for mental health issues, one of the things that regularly comes up is socioeconomic status and education. But in the Hispanic population, those two things don't seem to be as big of a risk factor. And we do want to, you know, just take note of that. Not saying that we would ignore it since it's not as big of a risk factor, but as it is interesting to note how some of their beliefs, like La Familia, may buffer against that the issues that may come up when they are not making as much money or they don't have as much education. They are, and they're focusing on what they've got in the present. The caregiving ideology of Hispanic culture is exemplified by most Hispanic clients living with their families. This is not always true, uh, but a lot of times if a Hispanic person is living in a multi-generational household that gives you an indication that there is probably a uh, premium put on caregiving. Fatalistic views are shared by many Hispanic patients who view illness as God's will or divine punishment brought about by previous or current sinful behavior. Recognizing, and this is where it's really important when we're working with clients of different cultures to ask them, what is your perception of what's causing this problem? And what do you think needs to happen in order to help you address this issue? People who are Hispanic are less likely to use medical alternatives than white Americans. And some Hispanic patients may prefer to use home remedies and consult folk healers instead of seeing your traditional doctors or psychiatrists or psychologists. And that's okay. If they're seeing us and, you know, they're voluntarily seeing us, then one of the things we can ask, is there anybody else who you want to be involved in your 
treatment program. It can be very empowering to them to be able to say, you know, I want my my priest involved or I want a folk healer involved or whatever the case may be. Physical or mental illness may be attributed to an imbalance between the person and the environment. Influences include emotional, spiritual, and social state, as well as physical factors such as humoral imbalance expressed as too much hot or cold. And we talked about this some last week when we were talking about Asian cultures, the hot and the cold. The hot is a lot of, you know, anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of anger. The cold is a lot of depression, a lot of, you know, fatigue and those sorts of things. So looking at the physical factors, you know, hot things are going to cause fast heart rate. They're going to cause GI disturbances, speeding things up. Cold disturbances are going to tend to feel much more slowing and much heavier. Hot and cold are intrinsic properties of substances and conditions. And sometimes there are differences of opinion about what is hot and what is cold. Uh, Like I just said, cold mental health diseases and conditions include depression and and fatigue and sometimes sometimes grief. Grief gets a little mixed in there because you've got anger and depression. Hot mental health diseases include anger, anxiety, and mania. Cold conditions are treated with hot medications and hot with cold medications. Not, you know, Hachu virus cold, but medications that will help slow the person down. When we talk about, you know, psychotropics, you can think of cold medications being like your anti-anxiety medications and hot medications being more stimulatory. Latinx are more likely to believe alcohol and illicit prescription drugs will have negative consequences than white Americans. So that's good. That's a protective factor. Although Puerto Rican participants were more likely than other students to see increased sociability as a positive expectancy related to drinking, uh, Puerto Rican participants were also significantly more likely to report abstinence from alcohol. So they were likely to see the fact or believe that if they drank, they would be more sociable, but they were also, you know, still less likely to drink, which is an interesting paradox there. Individuals who abuse substances cause their whole families to suffer. And this is believed by about 81.4% of the population. And you can find these statistics if you go to the uh, SAMHSA tip on working with uh, multicultural populations. People who use illicit drugs will participate in violent crime and act violently towards family members. About 78 to 79% of the time, they found a correlation between Drug use and violence is not a surprise. And driving under the influence of alcohol is one of the most serious substance use problems in the Hispanic or Latinx community. We do need to recognize that and encourage them to do things to address it. One of the easy things, you know, because some people don't have a problem with substances, do not have an alcohol abuse issue, but they don't recognize when they are above the legal limit. They have, you can go on, I hate to promote Amazon, but you can go on Amazon or you can go on the internet and you can find uh, keychain breathalyzers. They are not as accurate, obviously, as the ones that the cops have, but a keychain breathalyzer is something that people can very easily and use, you know, then go to the bathroom or something or go in their car and sit down and breathalyze themselves before they turn on the motor to make sure that they are below the legal limit or theoretically 
theoretically below the legal limit. Like I said, they're not, you know, 100% accurate, but it gives you a pretty good idea. And it's also important to educate this population about driving under the influence and blood alcohol levels. And, you know, just make sure they understand what does it take to get over the legal limit? And, you know, how long does it take to get back under the legal limit if I... breathalyze myself and, you know, I'm a point, point one or point one two. how long do I have to wait? For the Hispanic and Latinx populations, drinking alcohol is often a part of social occasions and celebrations, and solitary drinking is discouraged and by some seen as deviant or problematic. Social norms are often quite different. They're perceived uh, Latinas, female People who are uh, female and in the Hispanic population are perceived as promiscuous or delinquent in meeting their family duties if they are abusing substances. So there definitely is a double standard here. Heavy emphasis on the idealization of motherhood contributes to the level of denial about the prevalence of substance use among Latina population. And not everybody, like I said, not everybody embraces this uh, idealization of motherhood, but in general, in the more traditional cultural perspective, um, women are expected to have babies and to be emotionally and physically present to care for those babies. And if they choose to drink and they develop a problem with alcohol, then they have forsaken their children. They have forsaken their their family for the alcohol. That is the perception. Mal de ojo is caused by a person with a strong eye, especially interestingly enough, green or blue eyes, looking with admiration or jealousy at another person. And this is one of those culture bound syndromes, but we do need to recognize that it is something people, you know, embrace and believe in. Nerviosimo is sickness of the nerves and is common and may be treated medicinally or spiritually. And this really goes to stress or anxiety. Susto is fright resulting in soul loss and may be acute or chronic and includes a variety of vague complaints. With susto, women are often affected more than men. It's important to know these terms if you're working with people from this culture, because if they are talking about susto, you need to understand what that means. There is typically a hierarchy of interventions in traditionally Hispanic and Latinx populations. They start out with home remedies. They ask relatives, they ask neighbors, especially female relatives or neighbors to see, you know, what would you do? How do you handle this? Then they go to a yaberte, your Yerbatero, sorry, I'm butchering some of these, I'm trying, um, which is an herbalist who may have other remedies to help them cope with whatever physiological symptoms they're having. The Sobador is a massage therapist, and that comes next. The next one is a partera, who is a midwife who may also treat children. The next in the hierarchy is the curandero total, who is a lay healer, that works with people's physical and spiritual balance and presenting issues, which is followed finally. You can see how we're going in increasing levels of intensity or severity to the doctor naturalista who prescribes natural remedies without a spiritual component. And then after that comes traditional Western medicine. But a lot of times the hierarchy of interventions is tried first before going to a uh, traditionally Western 
physician. There are a lot of barriers to treatment. Some of them include lack of Spanish-speaking service providers, limited English proficiency of the people who are seeking services, and financial constraints. Many people who are Latinx or, or Hispanic only seek medical care for serious illnesses because they don't have insurance or, you know, they don't have the financial ability to pay for, you know, just random issues, which is another reason why they may go through the hierarchy of treatments or intervention providers, starting with home remedies. I think most of us these days probably do. When we start feeling sick, we start, you know, taking more vitamins or doing things to try to stave it off so we don't have to go to the doctor. There's often a lack of culturally responsive services, especially in, in rural areas, it's, it seems, uh, which is important. Not only do we need to have providers that are bilingual, we also need to have an environment of care that is culturally responsive. That means more than just a clinician. That means when they walk into the li uh, living room, gosh, when they walk into the waiting room, they feel accepted. They feel acknowledged. They feel valued. Some people don't seek services for fears of about their immigration status or losing custody of children while they're in treatment. When people have to go to residential, their kids have to go somewhere. And this is a common barrier for a lot of people who may seek out treatment and need residential treatment. And we do want to recognize that. There's a negative attitude toward providers, especially tr traditionally Western providers, because a lot of times they have probably sought out help They've needed help and they've encountered providers who were not culturally responsive, who did not make an effort and who were, you know, may have been somewhat overbearing and disrespectful, probably unintentionally. But remember, too much eye contact is considered disrespectful. Calling somebody by their first name, considered disrespectful. So there may be a lot of ways where the person was treated and, and, the caregiver did not mean to be disrespectful, but they were not being culturally responsive. Other barriers include discrimination and lack of knowledge about available services. It's important that we work within the community to let them know what services are there. If you have in your community a church or churches that offer services that are exclusively in Spanish, well, that's probably a good clue uh, as to where you might be able to connect with large groups of people who are uh, Hispanic or Latinx. And working with those pastors, priests, preachers, whatever they are, you know, depending on the, uh, depending on, you know, what, what church it is, you can get the message out. You can help them learn about resources. By the same token, just like, you know, another one of those things that I say all the time, we need to do less telling and more ask. We need to work with those priests and pastors and say, you have got a congregation. You have got people who come to these masses or services that are exclusively in Spanish. And so they may be embracing some of the traditional Hispanic beliefs. What is it that they, what services, what resources can we try to start creating and providing in order to enhance the health and mental health and wellness of the people in your congregation? Ask, get in, input, ask if there's anybody in the congregation who might be willing to sit on a board at, at your organization that can identify types of services um, 
that are that are really needed. Mental health quality of life among lesbian, gay, and bisexual, midlife, and older adults is significantly lower in Hispanic populations compared to non-Hispanic whites. The association between ethnicity, race, and mental health quality of life in some studies has been explained by higher levels of perceived stress related to lower socioeconomic status, higher frequency of lifetime discrimination, and a lack of social connectedness among Hispanic LGBT adults. And there's a lot of issues when you're working with the LGBTQ population um, in general. And, you know, take that and add to it cultural issues and maybe cultural discrimination or prejudice. Uh, it, it's important to understand that there are multiple layers that individuals who identify both as Hispanic or Latinx and LGBTQ may be experiencing. Higher rates of depression and anxiety were associated with longer exposure to the U.S. among Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Dominicans, and other Hispanic or Latinx persons, but interestingly, not among Central Americans. Now, that's just one of those interesting stats out there. The take-home that I got from it was the longer people were in the U.S., the more stressed out they got, which, so we want to ask, why is that for these people? Are they missing their family at home? Are they feeling discrimination? Are they getting separated from their culture of origin? So the strengths and resources that they used to have are not as available anymore because they don't have that same La Familia thing going on. Perceived discrimination also increases with duration of U.S. resident. And whether it actually increased or whether they were just noticing it more, um, you know, the, the, the article really didn't talk about. But it's important to understand that the longer somebody is in the U.S., the more experiences they are going to have that are discriminatory, which is going to contribute to sense of rejection, hopelessness, helplessness. Additionally, as time in the U.S. increased, the size of social networks decreased. And we know in, you know, traditional populations of, of Hispanic people, social support is really important. And those social networks are wide. You know, it's not just you know, mom, dad, and kids. It's extended family. It's non-blood related extended family and working together and supporting one another. So as that dissolves, uh, we can see strength uh, we can see stress increase. Retention of cultural heritage is positively associated with self-esteem and pro-social behavior and negatively associated with internalizing, negatively associated with those feelings of depression, anger, guilt, and even, you know, physical internalizing symptoms. Biculturalism involves both retaining one's cultural heritage and acquiring the receiving culture. And it's more facilitative of positive mental health and protective against internalizing symptoms. So this is, you know, asking people or in assisting people in embracing and retaining their natural, original cultural heritage, but also finding a way to embrace the receiving cultures heritage. So they feel like they're a part of 
both family, if you want to think about it that way. In terms of protective factors, there is a strong role for spirituality and religiosity with a lot of people who are Hispanic, but not everybody. Non-judgmental cultural attributions that convey interpersonal warmth are also important, like recognizing the importance of family to the culture, recognizing the supportiveness of, of the culture for each other. Cross-border resources can also be very helpful, especially if they have family members that are still living in the country of origin. Familiism, which indicates identity, pride, and loyalty, values family considerations over individual or even community needs. So they're looking at their family, their, you know, extended family, and what does that family need. The nuclear family is the most basic and common social unit, but many extended families uh, are also present. So you have the nuclear family, the, you know, primary caregivers, the children, maybe even the grandparents, but there also may be other extended families that are, are considered. So you may want to do a family map with the client to understand who is in their family system, who is in their network. Family involvement in healthcare is common and healthcare providers are strongly advised to encourage such involvement if the client wants it, if they want their parent involved, if they want their grandparent involved, you know, let's talk about how we can effectively make that happen and what, what that looks like for the client. What does the client want? Do they want somebody sitting in the session with them? Do they want to bring somebody in at the end of session to get a recap on what was, what, what you went over? Do they want family therapy in addition to individual therapy? What does it look like? Familiism, um, tends to be patriarchal and follow a rigid, rigid hierarchical structure. We talked earlier about machismo. The father or oldest male holds the greatest power in most families and may make health decisions for the entire family. Now, this is important to recognize that it could be the oldest male, even if the oldest male is a teenager. Men are expected to provide for and be in charge of their families. They're expected to take care of their families. Marianismo is the concept that the woman is the primary force holding the family and home together through work and cultural wisdom and is responsible for most parenting. So there is a great importance on both the female and the male in the, um, in the family, but they have different roles and they recognize their unique yet equally important roles. Women in traditional culture are often expected to respect and submit to their husband's and give deference. Privately though, some women will hold a greater degree of power, but in public, there is usually more deference toward the authority male figure in the family. Unfortunately, in families where uh, there are people who are embracing uh, traditional cultural values, the threat of physical violence is often un unreported or underreported because the female does not want to report um, report the abuse, does not want to make waves, is expected to hold the family together, not do something that may break it apart. The perceived U.S. social standing improved with years in the U.S. and was associated with lower odds of mental health problems. So the longer people are in the U.S., you know, yes, 
some problems increase, but their perceived social standing, uh, they, they believe increases the longer they're in the U.S. Part of their ethnic identity revolves around belonging and pride. So we do want to talk, we talked earlier about forgiveness and sacrifice being important concepts. Well, belonging and pride are also other important concepts for mental health protection. When we're talking about our approach with clients who are Hispanic or Latinx. We want to use personalismo expressions of concern, interest in the client's families, and personal warmth. And really thinking about, you know, evaluate yourself over the next, when you're working with clients, what do you do? Do you walk in and everybody sits down and you say, okay, tell me what progress that you've made. You know, that is not starting out with personal warmth. That's getting down to business. It's important to spend even, you know, two or three minutes just expressing concern, taking interest, asking how the kids are doing or whatever. Value of the most positive aspects of the Latinx cultural groups include strength, perseverance, flexibility, and the ability to survive. We want to emphasize, the, we want to hear in their stories, strength and perseverance. We want to hear in their solutions, flexibility and how they've shown repeatedly their ability to survive um, difficult situations. Latinx cultural groups view time as more flexible and less structured than other cultures. So it's important to recognize that and, and communicate to your clients how important punctuality is and recognize that they have a more fluid sense of time. Remember to avoid framing non-compliance in Latinx or Hispanic clients as resistance or anger. It's often instead what they consider a relaxed fight, showing both a sense of being mis misunderstood and respect for your identity. They don't want to come out and say, this ain't working for me. They don't want to be contrary, but we've missed something. And when you look at, you know, research on resistance, what does resistance indicate or non-compliance indicate? A lot of times, you know, it's a behavior, it's communicating. It's communicating that what we've asked the client to do is overwhelming or too much for them. They don't understand exactly how to do it, or they don't see why it's important or how it could work. So ultimately they feel misunderstood, yet they don't want to seem disrespectful. So they may not actually come out and say it, which brings us back to what we talked about several slides ago, viewing behavior as communication and asking, what does this behavior mean? Respecting women's choices can mean supporting empowerment to pursue new roles and make new choices or reinvigorating the positivity of culture to promote recovery while respecting and maintaining traditional family roles of women. Really important here to understand and to ask, what does this woman envision when she thinks of a rich and meaningful life? What does she envision that looking like? She may embrace the traditional family roles or not, but we don't want to inadvertently push her in a direction that she's not comfortable. Cognitive behavioral therapy for Hispanic persons in mental health and substance abuse treatment uh, is somewhat effective because it's action-oriented, problem-focused, and didactic. The didactic component can frame therapy as an educational 
and less shameful experience. So we're just teaching. We're teaching them about cognitive distortion. We're teaching them about the ABCs. We're teaching them stuff, uh, stuff that they may not have known. Contingency management can be helpful. Providing rewards for the accomplishment of certain things and teaching them how to use contingents to reward and motivate behavior. Motivational interviewing is really effective. And there are some modifications that you can make if you click on the link in the, once you open the PowerPoint in the classroom. Um, but motivational interviewing uses the frames approach. It provides feedback to the individual about what might be going on. It puts the responsibility for change directly on the shoulders of the of the patient. It provides some advice, some education about options that are available. It provides a menu of options. You know, we're going to teach them about multiple different ways to address this because we don't know any particular one way that works for everybody. It provides empathy. So they feel understood. They feel cared for and it provides support. So the frames approach is really an effective approach to helping people identify the resources necessary, make that choice and feel supported to implement those new changes. Node link mapping can also be helpful because it provides visual representations using information diagrams, fill in the blank graphic tools and client generated diagrams or visual maps. You can use this like I talked about earlier for diagramming the family. You can also use it uh, to diagram problems, you know, you have this central problem. Now, how show me all the other ways it may impacting you. You can do a lot with visual node mapping. So people can start seeing connection between their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Family-based approaches that focus on conserving and cultivating cultural resources, um, rather than on reducing family conflict are really important. If the client is embracing of the, of a traditional culture, if we are conserving and cultivating respect and harmony and, you know, support for one another, then family conflict is naturally going to reduce. So instead of trying to focus on taking away a problem, we want to enhance their natural strength. La Clave is a conceptually informed psychoeducational tool with a developing empirical base aimed at helping Spanish speaking Latinx with serious mental illnesses obtain care in a timely manner. And you can click on or go to uh, uselaclave.com and find out more about that. That's, you know, way beyond the scope of this presentation. But the important thing is it's a tool that can be used to help people who are already, who are Spanish speaking, um, identify resources and care. It's important to learn about each family member's view about their cultural background, history of the relative's illness, coping strategies, goals, and expectations of treatment, needs, and desires of family members. If the family is going to be involved, we need to get their input. Again, we don't want to just tell them what's going on. We want to elicit from them. What is your feeling? What is your perspective on what's going on? What have you seen that's been tried that worked? And what have you seen that's been tried that didn't work? Psychoeducation focuses on increasing illness knowledge and problem solving skills. Again, with the focus on strengthening resources and adding resources uh, to the person's repertoire instead of focusing on trying to take away a problem. You know, we look at the problem and we say, okay, what's missing that would help ameliorate this problem? Maybe they're missing 
effective communication skills. So we want to increase knowledge of effective communication skills. As those improve, hopefully family conflict starts to be reduced. Psychoeducation consists of educational content on the cause, biology, symptoms, and treatment of the problem, and various coping skills guidelines. This is where we're providing advice. We're providing information about the options that are there. Each session allows for an initial engagement period, the you know, where you're making niceties and everybody's getting comfortable, the structured didactic curricula, and an interactive period to process the learned material. It's really important to work with them and have them apply it. Say, okay, you know, we talked about this, you know, how could you apply what we talked about to something that happened last week? Or how do you see this being helpful to you in the upcoming week? If the client desires, involve families in the skills training activities. So they're developing the same skills. Encourage the interdependence of clients with their relatives in lifestyles that enable the client to be more functional members of the family household. We want to understand in what way is this person not a functional member and what can we do to enhance that functionality and improve the mechanics, improve the working of the family system. Helpful questions in assessment. What do you think caused your problem? Do you have an explanation for why it started when it did? What does your sickness do to you and how does that work? How severe has the sickness been and how long do you expect it to last? Remember, a lot of symptoms are somaticized. So phrasing it in terms of a sickness can be um, helpful for encouraging people to to discuss it. What problems has your sickness caused you? What do you fear about your sickness? What kind of treatment do you think you should receive? And what are the most important results for you to receive from this treatment? And if you're working with the family, you're going to ask them, you know, with, with some minor changes, these same questions. So you understand their perception of the person's problem and what they hope the outcome will be. Programmatic strategies, socializing the client to treatment. Hispanic clients are are likely to benefit from orientation sessions that review treatment and counseling processes and introduce staff. We want to welcome them into the family. There's a reassurance of confidentiality. Um, and because a lot of people are fearful of their stuff getting out, but they're also fear, fearful of deportation. There should be client counselor matching based on gender. Um, it also often has an effect of improving engagement and client program matching to ethnicity specific programs that will, you know, help them connect with people who share similar values and thoughts. In general, we want to try to provide bilingual services when necessary. Family therapy should be considered as a primary method of treatment. It's vitally important to assess cultural identity and their level of acculturation, not only for the patient, but for each family member who's involved in the treatment process. You want to determine the family's level of belief in traditional and complementary healing practices and integrate these as appropriate. It's important to discuss the family's beliefs, their history, you know, the, that family's history, and experiences with standard American behavioral health service. Let's understand what they already think they know or what they've already experienced and identify what we need to do in order to be as culturally responsive and help them feel as safe as possible. Explore migration and immigration experiences if appropriate and provide additional respect to the father or father figure in the family during every set. I know that just hit the, you know, 
highest, highest level of highlights and gave you some things to think about. And that was my goal in this class was just to give you things to think about. It's not going to make you multiculturally competent, but it's important to understand some of the issues that your clients may be facing and questions you may need to start asking. Remember, ask more than talk. Ask what types of services they need. Ask if and, and encourage their participation to help shape your programming strategy to best meet their needs. Are there any questions? If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.